In his seventh kingdom parable, and you might want to turn over to Matthew 13, the seventh kingdom parable, Jesus paints a chilling fisherman's portrait of trawling for fish, both good and bad. He says in verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Note that a dragnet cast into the sea. The sea is the sea of humanity. The dragnet is the great reach of God, picking up fish of every kind, filling up the net, pulling it on board the ship, and you have the church. The church. Lots of fish. Good and bad. This is stirring. It can even be a bit upsetting because we pause and consider, as with the parable of the wheat and the tares, which he began with among these seven parables, Even within the church, you have those who are going to go when he calls. My buddy Glenn this last week asked me, Rick, do you really believe, is it your theology now, that some people, even in the church, will not be saved, will not at least go in the rapture? And I answered him, yes. And not by my judgment, and I don't say that to scare anyone, But the reality is, our salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ, period, not by attending church. There are plenty of fish on board the deck of this church, good and bad. And at the end of the age, they will be separated out. At the end of the age, the wheat and the tares will be separated. The rapture of the church is for those who believe in Jesus Christ, who love Him as Lord and Savior. And it is truly as simple as that. And so we will see more going than we expected and less going than we expected. We will be surprised, I believe, on both counts when we're in the presence of Jesus, caught up to be with the Lord, we will be surprised at who's there. Maybe even that we're there. And we will be surprised, I think, at who is not. But Jesus gives this parable. Why would He say such a thing? Because He loves us so much that He would warn 2,000 years ago that we might be caught as good fish. Righteous fish. Healthy wheat. And how's that done? By faith in the grace of God. Because that's our righteousness. You understand that. It's not our deeds. It's His grace. And so Jesus tells this parable at the end of the seven, and He says to those listening, have you understood all these things? And they said to Him, yes. But I'm not convinced that the church fully has. Here at the end. Because again, the chilling commentary is that just because one appears in the net or on the deck of the ship does not mean that they will be kept. Just because a person appears caught does not mean that they will be caught up. And who is up to this kind of judgment? Not me. Not you. But the Lord Jesus Christ who knows every heart. 
And rather than be rattled, I would say to you all this evening, just give your heart to Jesus. Love Jesus. Trust in Him. Call Him Lord. And follow Him as Lord. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. No servant, no slave is. But we love our Lord. And it's in that love, it's in that relationship that we have the forgiveness of sins. By His grace. Again, he says, it will be this way at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Better not to know at all than to know and end up bad fish. So we come to Laodicea. The last church of the last days. Think about that. The last accumulation in and among the assembly of the final four versions, if you will, of the church. And I'm not saying that Laodicea is or must be the church worldwide. As we talked about last week and we said there are four isms of the last day's church. Let me remind you of these. There's Thyatira, which is Roman Catholicism. The church that's living for the church. And then there's Sardis, denominationalism, which is really living in the past of tradition and the way we've done things. There's Philadelphia that we talked about last week. Evangelism, living for the lost. But we come down to Laodicea and there is what I've called libertarianism. And I'm not, again, talking politically. I'm talking spiritually. It is living for the self. And there's an understanding here in the teaching, in the letter to Laodicea about the self that shocked me this week. Having taught this before, having been through Revelation a number of times before, there are many things in this letter that caught my attention that I had never seen. And I hope to bring those to your attention. But where we live, Laodicea seems to be pervasive. Because unlike the others, we're not talking about church organization. What we're talking about is a drag on the organization. We're talking more about, with Laodicea, attitude and behavior than we are, as with Thyatira, an entire system of a church. Sardis, systems, denominationalism of the church. Philadelphia, again, now we have an attitude of of a church that's going. And Laodicea, Laodicea is a pervasive issue within all of the church today. A little history. Laodicea was founded in 260 B.C. by the Syrian king Antiochus II. He named it for his wife. It's located in the Lycus River Valley, along with two other cities. It was kind of a tri-cities area of Laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae. That's important. These three things, these three cities shared some things together. It sat inland about 90 miles east of Ephesus, which was out right on the coast of the Aegean Sea, southwest Turkey. We have now made our way full circle around this Roman postal route, and we're down to the last church on the route. Five quick notes. If you want to jot these down or just think these through, and they're important in understanding the 
parabolic picture, the, the parable really that Jesus is painting as he chooses to write to and through Laodicea to the church of right now, today. Number one, affluence. Affluence. Laodicea was the wealthiest city in the entire region. In fact, Laodicea was the banking city. It had the the banking system. The largest banking system in all of Asia Minor was in Laodicea. Laodicea, this wealthy region, was also very fashionable in its wealth and its affluence. It was known for a very specific black wool fabric. You see, all the sheep around Laodicea were black sheep. Literally. They had this black wool, so everybody, it was an emo town, they all wore black. They were all dressed that way, that was the in fashion. And so they made their money selling this black wool, this is a special fabric and textiles. And again, along with that, the banking system and add into that that Laodicea sat on a major trade route. So much commerce and capitalism flowed through Laodicea. It also, note this, interesting, I'm not sure if there's anything to it, but it had a significantly wealthy Jewish population. Now Rick, why would you mention that? Well, I find it interesting because the largest Jewish population in the world outside of Israel is where? Anyone want to guess? America. It's right here. So for me, that's another parallel as we get further into this. Amusement is another thing to note, along with affluence. Laodicea has been seen as the Vegas of Asia Minor. There are ruins there of a 30,000-seat stadium, uh, two large Roman theaters. It was a place of entertainment. People would flock to Laodicea for their entertainment. There was, number three, an aqueduct. Aqueduct. Laodicea had a water problem. uh, Truly a big issue. Though located in the Lycus River Valley, they had no water. That was their problem. (laughs) And so they, they worked in a marvel of engineering design with their sister cities, Hierapolis and Colossae. Colossae the, the three worked together to build this complex aqueduct system. There were aqueducts that ran six miles from Hierapolis to Laodicea. And aqueducts that ran from Colossae to Laodicea. Both directions. Think about your sink at home and what do you have? You typically have two faucets. On one there's a letter H and the other one there's a letter C for Hierapolis and Colossae. (laughs) It actually works. It works because Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. And so they were designed in this aqueduct system to pump hot water from Hierapolis down to Laodicea. Colossae was known for its cold freshwater springs. And so they were pumping the fresh water, the cold water, from Colossae to Laodicea. Guess what? When the hot water got to Laodicea and the cold water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. I mean, how would you feel? You build a house, you're very excited. You're going to have hot and cold running water and all you have is lukewarm. And that's exactly what happened in this fantastic engineering uh, design. They, they didn't think about that water cools or warms. And as it flowed, that's what Laodicea ended up with, lukewarm water. Truly, historically. So affluence, amusement, aqueduct system. Number four, appeasement. Appeasement. 
Laodicea had to figure out a way to protect itself because truly it was militarily indefensible. Even if they were to build great walls and have a a massive military guard, the problem with Laodicea goes right back to the aqueduct. The only way to get water into the city was through the aqueduct, and so all you had to do was cut off the aqueduct in both directions, and no water would flow, and the city would die of thirst. So any kind of military siege would be a big issue for Laodicea. So they couldn't afford to be in battle. They couldn't afford to fight, so they had to appease everyone. And what Laodicea did was appease the ruling power of the day. Whoever the big cheese was, they were the ones that they bent the knee to, and they maintained peace through backroom diplomacy and political correctness. Affluence, amusement... This lukewarm aqueduct system, appeasement, and finally, number five, application. Application. That is, Laodicea produced a world-class ISAV to apply to the eyes, to bring about healing to the eyes. Interesting, it was also another center for the Greek god of healing. You may remember from Pergamos, the Greek god Asclepius. Remember the twisted snakes on the pole? And Asclepius, the god of healing, well, they had a a, a temple there for Asclepius, and they were into healing, specifically developing a world-renowned ophthalmological ointment along with an ear ointment. So eyes and ears. And it was so well known that even Aristotle wrote about it. And that all came right out of Laodicea. Now, think these things through and pay attention to what they portray here, because Jesus uses these. All of these writes his letter directly to Laodicea for historical Laodicea, but as we've been talking about with every letter, corporately for the entire church, personally to you and to me, and get this prophetically, prophetically to the church when? Right now. The church of today. Jesus uses these. Why? Why Why does Jesus speak to us in parables? Matthew 13, 11. To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing... Note this, while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. That's Laodicea. The the city with the eye salve and the ear ointment, and they couldn't see or hear either one. Jesus says in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. and They have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. And Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes, because they see. And your ears, because they hear. And I think about the church today and what Jesus is doing. He keeps saying over and over and over, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we start with Ephesus and we end with Laodicea. And all the way through, it seems like it gets more dire with the exception of Philadelphia. 
Why? Because people aren't seeing what he's saying. People aren't hearing what he's putting down. And I please, I'm not wanting to come across as lecturing tonight, but the church needs some passion that it sorely lacks in the world today. Our fellowship, even, and I love our fellowship. We need our eyes open. We need our ears open. Do we, the Bridge Christian Fellowship, have ears to hear and eyes to see? Does the church today... See, Laodicea did. And and this is important to understand as well. Laodicea as a church, the church fellowship, the church planted in Laodicea, they did see and hear at one time. They were passionate for Jesus at one time. In fact, we know it was one of the earliest hubs of Christianity in the entire Asia Minor region. We know that Papias was bishop there. Papias? Who's that? He was bishop in the region, specifically in Hierapolis, but between Laodicea and Colossae and Hierapolis, Papias was bishop there between, he was born in 60 AD, all the way lived to 163 AD, and he knew John. In fact, Irenaeus tells us that he was a hearer of John and a disciple of John's disciple, Polycarp. So you got John, Polycarp, Papias, and Papias was right there. This guy was a major leader in the early church. There in Hierapolis. He wrote a five-volume book, Papias did. The book is called The Sayings of Our Lord, and we don't have it anymore. Oh, I wish that we did. Now, God in His wisdom has given us all the sayings of the Lord that He wants us to have, but it would sure be cool to have some other sayings of the Lord too, wouldn't it? And if you're paying attention, and if you're caught up, think about all the sayings of the Lord that we're going to hear. Won't that be amazing? Well, the churches of that area were founded by a notable co-worker of the Apostle Paul. His name was Epaphras. Remember him? Back when we studied Philemon and Colossians, Epaphras is named Philemon 23. Uh, Philemon 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. Paul writes. And then he says in Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who's one of your number, Church of Colossae, a, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Now listen to this. Paul says, this is in the 60s, He says, I testify for Epaphras that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So here's Paul sending this letter in the mid, or actually early, probably 62 AD. And in this letter he says, yeah, Epaphras, plan of the church is there, he loves you so much. And he keeps telling me he's concerned for you. Epaphras was right to have such a deep concern. And we begin to see that as we come to the letter. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, writes, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, 
neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Spit is a nice way of saying vomit. I can't stomach lukewarm behavior. A lukewarm attitude. I just can't take it, the Lord would say. As He writes to Laodicea. Now we say Laodicea, and we're used to saying that in the English language, but if you're reading it in Greek, it is Laodicea. It's that hard K, and I tell you that, but it really doesn't matter to me, because in keeping with the attitude of the church, I don't care. (laughs) Call it what you want. Laodicea, Laodicea, Laodicea or Hea, whatever. I don't care. Because Laodicea represents the lukewarm church. Where it really rattles my spirit is it's not the pathetic apathy that's of concern here. It is the prophetic application. Because it's the church in the church age. It's the season of the church that he's talking about here that is so apathetic and is so lukewarm. Listen again, another hint to the location and, and the characteristic of this, of this church and this attitude. Laodicea is two Greek words put together. Laos, meaning the common people. It's where we get our word laity. Remember we talked about the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, power to the people. Or power over the people was the attitude of the Nicolaitans. Well, these are the Laodiceans. And Laos, again, is common people. But DK is the second part of the word Laodikia. And the second half originally meant, it, it meant manner or tendency. You know, you, you might have a tendency towards something or something that's your, your mannerism. But the word came to be used as the right or established custom. So put together, and the word means the people's rights. Rights of the people. The people have the right, we might say, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What is the big catchphrase in our country today? The rights of the people. We have a right to health care. I'm not sure why. We have a right to this, a right to that. Everybody always talks about it, but that's my right. The people's right. That's Laodicea. The people's rights. And what's interesting is that I I told you that the last part of the word, the people's rights, Laodicea, the last part of the word is that it was tendencies that had become rights. Think about that. Tendencies that have become rights. What are you saying, Rick? I'm talking about a people who have come to believe that they not only have rights, but they have the right to whatever tendency, inclination, or self-experience they desire. It's my right. No other letter of the seven more hauntingly depicts the church in America today. The church of the people's rights. And when we look at general And I'm talking generically and specifically. I'm not talking about the bridge. And I'm not talking about sister churches in the area. But I'm saying generically when we talk about the American church, it is the church of the people, by the people, and for the people. So help us us. Would that it was so help us God. The Bible teaches in Daniel 7.14 to Him... That is, Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all the peoples and nations and languages would serve Him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, For us there is but one God, the Father, and from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And remember to whom the revelation is written? little hint to you about our relationship with Him, with Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 1, which God gave Him to show to His what? What? What's the word? Look it up. Revelation 1, 1. Bond servants. Don't forget that. You want to be in a relationship with Jesus, you become a bond servant. He's the Lord. So much for our rights. Truly, walking with Jesus is learning how to give up and give over all our rights. So I ask, are we a church of bond servants? Or are we the church of the people's rights? Are we more concerned with our liberty or with His Lordship? Now, don't get me wrong, there is freedom in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. You see, it's not freedom to do as we will. It's freedom in doing as He wills. It's freedom that comes of being a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and it's the most free, wonderful thing in the world. That's real freedom. When we talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, when we look at the Constitution of the United States, freedom is not found in our Constitution. Freedom is found in Jesus Christ. And the Constitution is a wonderful thing. Because it was a system that was built on the morality of God. The truths and the values of God. But you take the truths and the values of God out and the Constitution is an empty shell. It doesn't work. Freedom. True to his other letters, Jesus begins then with components of his character. And these are amazing to me, especially how he speaks into this age, this season of the church age. He again, verse 14, refers to himself as... The Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. These characteristics are remarkably compelling. And we've been looking at these. You know, every letter he gives his characteristics, and the character traits that Jesus shares in the letters are perfect for that church historically, for that church prophetically, for the church in general corporately, and for every one of us personally, as we read the letter and look at how he expresses himself, we say, wow, Lord, I understand why you refer to this aspect of your character. And these are equally, if not more compelling than any that I have seen as we specifically consider the prophetic era of Laodicea, which again is right now. How many of you, just curious, show of hands, saw the state funeral of President George Herbert Walker Bush this morning? And I was driving my kids, so I listened on the radio, you know, and, and, and drove slowly. Because <laughs> I was intrigued. 
You know how wonderful it is at a state event to hear the name of Jesus Christ declared and proclaimed over and over to hear Scripture read at one point. They read Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5 and I was in my car just going, Yeah! Thinking about all those dignitaries sitting out there, good fish and bad. (laughs) George H.W. Bush, a humbled or a humble principled Honorable, accomplished man. Remarkable person. President of the United States, 1989 to 1993. I remember well. Some of you don't, that's okay. He was president in a postmodern world. We've talked a little bit about postmodernism here. We, we've talked about culture and some of these things. The postmodern world is what emerged out of World War II. So everything after World War II, even though there were different unique generations that followed that, the the generic mindset worldwide was what we called postmodernism. Postmodernism is what came along and rejected absolute truth in favor of relative truth. And that kind of shook things up a bit, because people suddenly were now saying there are no absolutes, or maybe there are some absolutes, but more of it's relative. And, And that became kind of a philosophical, overarching theme of the world for the postmodern era. But I'm listening to the funeral this morning and it just reminded me how radically things have changed in 25 years. 25 years is not that long. And when I think back to what was going on in the early 90s under his presidency and what's taken place today, and as I looked at the front row of the president sitting there, because I caught it when I ran home for five minutes, there they are. Wow. Man, that was icy cold. I don't know about you, but that's what I saw. It was just pure ice straight across the board there. Anyway. 25 years. I want you to think philosophically with me just for a moment here. Postmodernism is dead. It's dead. It's buried. The funeral has happened. In fact, the funeral happened and no one saw it coming. No one even knew. When postmodernism went six feet under, no one was aware. A change happened in this culture that was so subtle, but it was so instantaneous, and it's completely different now. Following the ambiguity and the rejection of absolute truth in that post-World War II era, we find ourselves now thrust into what they have really intelligently called post-postmodernism. What is that? Well, some call it meta Modernism, metamodernism, because there are some, there's a little bit of return to some of the principles of the modern era, which goes back to some absolute truth. You might hear that and go, yes, good, we've, we've turned a corner and we've gone back. Don't get ahead of me. Metamodernism, or what some have called the new sincerity. Here's the problem. While there is truly a return to a desire for absolute truth, the only absolute truth in the meta-modern age now is the truth that one sincerely believes themselves. We have slid into, rather than saying there is no absolute truth, we say, yes, there is, and it's what I believe. And it doesn't matter what's out there, and it's not, it doesn't matter what's told to me, and it doesn't matter what authority by which I am taught or told. The real truth, the only truth that matters is my truth. And that is absolute. Let me give you some pictures to understand this, this mentality and, and what it looks like, if, if, I, if I can do so. And there's so much to it 
But just be a student of culture and you will see these things. We have gone through from the vicarious experience of, say, movies. You know, you would go to the movies and you'd have this vicarious experience. You would watch it happen before you and you could see it taking place and kind of live through that. We've gone from vicarious to virtual. That is virtual reality of gaming. And it's so interesting, the age now, the desire is not to go sit two hours and waste two hours watching a movie. It's play the game. Because if you can play the game, you can get immersed into it. That avatar is me. That character is me. And I'm in this. And I'm engulfed in it. And it is moving fast in the direction of Ready Player One. If you've read the book or seen that movie, it's a great picture of the post-postmodern world. That's where it's going. Put on the visor, and you are in a different place, but it's you that is there. And it's not a vicarious experience, it is virtual reality. We have gone from indirect to immersive. Now some of you may be saying, well, so what's the big deal? It is a huge deal. We are in a more serious world, by the way, very serious, hashtag me too, it's a very serious time where you can't even joke around anymore. We've moved from Seinfeld cynicism into neo-sincerity. Have I told you Jerry Seinfeld won't even play college campuses anymore because he said they won't laugh at his jokes. They don't get his humor. He's irrelevant. Amazing. In this world, we are also developing and experiencing, because of this virtual reality hunger, and I'm just telling you like it is, we are experiencing separation from real relationships. They are virtual relationships. Texting, my friends, is not real relationship. It's virtual. Online gaming... It's virtual relationship. Now, I'm not standing here saying, and hear me on this, that we shouldn't do any of that. I'm saying we need to understand what's really happening here. Games like Fortnite? How many young people are playing Fortnite? Don't raise your hand. You're like, oh, Rick, come on, it's cartoon. Yeah, you're killing people. Ah, but it's cartoon. Okay. These experiences, gang, are detaching us. So what is happening also in this post-postmodern world, in this metamodernism, is people are becoming more into themselves, more aware of their own absolute truth, and there is a resistance, that's a big word in this age, isn't it? Resist. There is a resistance to all established truth that is replaced by a disconnected self-righteous experience. But it's not self-righteousness and righteousness that's based on any righteousness outside of ourselves. It's self-righteousness based on I'm right. And my truth is what matters. And it's bizarre. We have an entire culture with detachment disorder. Kids who don't know how to hang out and just be together for an evening without their phones lit up. Again, I'm just telling you the way it is. What I see... What the sociologists and those who study these things are telling us, we're in a weird place here. And as I've mentioned before, we have an entire generation now that's growing up who have never known anything other than little screens and big screens and medium-sized screens. Screens of all sizes. 
So that really you can spend your day waking up in the morning with one screen, go to the next screen, end up with a bigger screen, and go back to the little screen and go to sleep, and you have never been in the real world for an entire day. This really should rattle us a bit. I'm not calling cell phones sinful. But you know what? In my generation, Glenn, we were talking about this, in our generation, even today, a cell phone's a tool. But in the generation coming up, a cell phone is part of who they are. It is part of their identity. I mentioned avatars in gaming. It's part of who they are. It, it's it's identity. You know... I don't want to call anybody out, but I know someone who walked out of a gaming situation where their character died in tears. And I'm going, what? When was the last time you were playing Monopoly? (laughs) Something's bizarre, and we need to be aware of it. There's this disconnect happening... We're all supposed to be connected, right? And that's what social media is supposed to do, connect us all. It's not. It's, it's creating a thin veil between us where there's not real relationship. Well, I could go on and on talking about it, but listen, this is what's marvelous. This is the good news. That into this confused era of sincere self-absorption, Jesus comes along and calls Himself the Amen. So, the Amen. The Amen. It's one of two words that is translated universally in every language. It's just, there's not another word for it. It's just Amen and Hallelujah. Every language, if you're going to say Amen, you just say Amen. Every language, you just say Hallelujah. And Jesus is the Amen, which is the so be it, the truly, truly of the truth. And he speaks this directly into this era. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. Which is one way of saying, this is no big surprise to me. Seen it come and I've seen it go. I am. I am, he says, the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. My sister Rachel and I were talking about this today and this whole era and what, what has happened in the post postmodern world and she described it in a way that I thought was really uh, concise. It's like a shell that's completely empty. It's a shell, strong, you know, and, and here's, here's this presentation of myself in this shell, but there's nothing inside. I am my own truth. Well, then you're empty because your truth is nothing. There's only one who is true, and that is Jesus. The shell can be filled, but without Jesus, it's, it's a farce. The whole thing is false. The two greatest certainties of this era are, number one, Jesus Christ, who is the Amen, and His certain return. He is, and He is coming quickly. Which is why the whole book will end, Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And into this world of self-experience, Jesus says, Hey, 
Experience me. Know me. Attach to me. You know what's great? You cannot text Jesus. You can't Snapchat the Christ. Can't do it. You you can't video game with Jesus. You just got to be with Him. That's the only option. Is to be in His presence. To know His person. There is no veil. Because you know what? When you have faith in Jesus Christ, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3? The veil is lifted. And while the enemy is trying so hard to put every veil possible between us as people and between us and God, Jesus comes rolling in and says, I'm the Amen. I am the so be it. He also calls himself the faithful and true witness, which is the one who is trustworthy and who has the genuine testimony. Into this world, this wanting, we want to go back to absolute. We know in our humanity that there's got to be something true. Of course, the metamodernist mentality is what's true is whatever I make it, and that's just bunk, which is my culture's way of saying lame. It's me. No. There's no absolute there. But there is absolute truth in Jesus Christ who is the testimony, who is trustworthy. In other words, who or what can you really trust in the age of Facebook or Reddit or fake news? Who can you really trust? And I could ask the question in all kinds of directions. I could say, can you trust CNN? And there are those who politically would say, no. And then I could say to others, can you trust Donald Trump? And there are those who go, no. Who, who really can, can you trust Pastor Rick? Don't say it. <laughs> who can you absolutely trust to be true? Brothers and sisters, you can believe Jesus. He's the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness. Revelation 1.5, He's called that. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. Or Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and Him who sat on it is called faithful and true. I can trust Him. He's rock solid. Revelation 22.6, Jesus says these words are faithful and true. And then he does something interesting with this era, with this age. He says, I am the beginning of the creation of God. It's perfect timing. I'm the beginning of the creation of God. Listen, that doesn't mean he's the first one created. See, some have tried to say that. Oh, let's see, there he is. He's a created being because he's the beginning of creation. He's the first one to be created. No, no. The word beginning is arxay, which means origin. Read it that way. I am the origin of the creation of God. That is to say, everything came through Jesus and by Jesus. What did John write in John chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Back in Genesis 1.26, what did He say? Let us make man in our image. Why does God speak in the plural? Well, because it's royalty. No, that's stupid. <laughs> Royalty got the idea from the divine. 
But God said, let us make man in our image because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all engaged in the creation process. So you had to speak in the plural. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been accurate. Or Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And Paul, 30 years prior to this letter, was already correcting some regional wrong thinking when he wrote to the church at Colossae and said all things were created by Him. Jesus is Creator. Why is this important for last days, Laodicea? See, again, Jesus knew where our science and where our philosophy would be right now, and He speaks Himself into it. He knew that the further our metamodern society descended into the self, the more empty we would feel. And the more empty we feel, the more we ask the same age-old question, where did we come from? And guess what? Evolutionary theory is failing. It's failing. For one thing, it's too impersonal. In an age where truth is defined by me, someone can come to me and say, evolution is the way it happened. Well, if that's not my experience... You can give me all kinds of facts and figures, although evolution is not factual. But you can throw all kinds of stuff my way, but if I don't feel like I believe that, well then it doesn't work. So it it can't hold up in this philosophical age that we're in. But did you know that science is quietly conceding that the evidence for evolution is simply not there? You're not going to hear it on the news. You're not going to hear it proclaimed. There's too much money in it now. They're not going to pull it out of the public schools because, well, we've got to pay the teachers. It's not true. And they cannot support it. And they've had over 200 years to do so. This is a last day's deception. Evolutionary theory is a last day's deception that didn't even exist as a theory until the unbelief of Darwin about 200 years ago. And I would say, okay, they've had 200 years to prove it, and they have not. In fact, it's just become more and more clear that it is not the way things came. Newer theories, of course, now include that our planet has been seeded by aliens. Those of you who saw the alien movie, that aliens like landed perhaps on Mars, and they went, let's, let's plant people over there. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And you know, here we are. We so desire connection. We so want what really is real that people without faith in Jesus are making these ridiculous leaps to try and find some idea, some sense of fulfillment of connection in a very lonely galaxy or universe if there is nothing but what we see. Okay, but I'm talking a lot about culture. Jesus is talking to the church, isn't He? It's to the church. Listen, it is to the church that He says, I am the beginning of the creation of God. Why would He have to say that to the church? Because sad to say, many Christians 
are either wishy-washy on the subject or water it down or wipe it out completely. Christians and entire churches and denominations that are teaching that the Genesis account of creation is an allegory of literature. It couldn't possibly have happened. Seven days. And besides, there's, there's, there's a proof from evolution, right? No, no, wrong. But that's what people think. That's what people have embraced. Well, we gotta, we gotta align with science and therefore, and, and I'm just here to tell you, God means what He says and He says what He means. And when He says, I created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, those were six 24 hour periods, evening and morning, one day. But the church doesn't believe it. And when the church takes the Word of God and stops believing it and starts getting wishy-washy on certain teachings of Scripture, you know what happens? The church gets lukewarm. We get lethargic. We start to mix worldly philosophies and theories and scientific ideas, unproven. We start to mix that into our theology and it just we just kind of get lethargic. You know, that's what lukewarm is. It's when you take hot and cold and mix it together, you get lukewarm. And the church is headed that direction. Jesus speaks into the church of the last days and He says, I am the archsay of the creation of God. It came through me and by me. And brothers and sisters of the church, we either believe that God is capable of everything He said that He did, or we don't. He's either Lord of all, or He isn't Lord at all. Are we going to accept Him and take Him at His Word? Well, then as with Sardis, what Jesus does in this letter is He skips right past any form of commendation, and He goes straight into a concerted criticism in verse 15. I know your deeds. Again, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Hot water is for cleansing. Cold water is refreshing. You know what I use lukewarm water for? I got a cavity filled a couple of weeks ago. I got a brush with lukewarm water, otherwise it buds me. Put hot water on it, yeah. Pour some cold water in it, But lukewarm is good. That's the only thing I can think of that lukewarm water is good for. Who wants to get into a lukewarm bath? Five minutes in, you're going... (laughs) Who wants a nice, lukewarm latte? (laughs) Cold coffee would be okay. Or hot coffee. Don't get me lukewarm. Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. And this is the room temperature church. Not really passionate about anything. This tepid, tasteless, indifferent, innocuous, ineffective, inoffensive, all-inclusive church. And I threw in all-inclusive because we just mix in everything and what happens? We don't believe in anything. And there are churches dotting the country that are just like that. Or all-encompassing. And when you believe everything, you believe nothing. Again, hot or cold will get a reaction. Lukewarm doesn't care. 
And that, by the way, is the most useless church. You ask the question, what kind of impact is the Church of America making on the world today? That tells us an awful lot about whether we're hot or cold or just bland and lukewarm. You know, think about this. At least people who are hot have skin in the game. You know, they can be redirected by the power of the Spirit, like the Zebedee brothers. I've given this example recently. Jacob and John, they were a couple of hotheads. They were heading to that Samaritan village, and Jesus says, go on ahead to the village and make preparations for us to stay the night there. And the village wouldn't allow Jesus' passage or billet there in the village because he was on his way to Jerusalem. James and John said, Lord, Luke 9.54, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> that's, just, that's just so spiritual, isn't it? They won't provide safe passage, so let's nuke them. Jesus turned and rebuked them, and Jesus says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Which is a real nice way of saying, you're not spiritual at all. Hotheads, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Hot people can be redirected. And you end up with John, who is hot as the disciple of love. Passionate for people. Writing the revelation, and does it in such vivid, even heated terms, of course, that Jesus gives him. So you can, you can redirect someone who's passionate. Man, give me a passionate person. Let's talk Jesus for half an hour and watch him light up. On the other hand, on the other hand, at least people who are cold can be thawed out. Think about Saul, who was an ice cold, steely eyed missile man. The Apostle Paul, who was not, he was Saul. And at the time, a Jew among Jews, Hebrew among Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. Man, his pedigree was perfect. Ice cold perfect. And he starts to go after the church with ice cold precision, beginning with standing there and watching Stephen Stone. That's right. That's what these people are going to get. And then he begins throwing them in prison. Standing by and watching. Involved in, he claimed himself, murder of Christians. Ice cold, this guy. And then, of course, he ends up in Damascus, you know, after the vision of Jesus and being drawn into the city, and he's now blind and he is in prayer and three days are going by. Well, God goes to Ananias there in Damascus and says, Ananias, I want, I want you to go, I want you to go lay your hands on Saul. I, I love the scene. I mean, it's just so real. Here's Ananias. You want me to do what? I know about that guy and I happen to know why he's here. What are you talking about? And the Lord said to him, Acts 9.15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So people who are cold can be thawed out by the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Saul became Paul. Now, Jesus did tell us about this age, Matthew 24, 12, that because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. When we hear that as a church, that is not a verse to cause us to say, oh well, 
Lawlessness is increasing. People's love is going to grow cold. Oh well. Can't do anything about it now. Their love's just cold. No, no. What this world needs from the church is the hot, passionate warmth of Christ's love. What the world also needs is people who are hotheads and, and, and argumentative and don't want to hear it. They need the cool refreshment of His living water, the Holy Spirit. Guess what two things the church has to offer the world? The love of God and the Spirit of God. We offer the Word of God, which reveals His great love and will melt any heart that will listen. And we have the Holy Spirit who will refresh anyone who's dry and bitter. But the Laodicean church is the church that's, well, like the people of Israel, honestly, on Mount Carmel, vacillating between God on the one hand and the Baals on the other hand. And when you're neither hot nor cold, you're just lukewarm. When you're mixing a little bit of both, you're just lethargic. And Elijah came near to the people, 1 Kings 18.21, and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? The word hesitate there is hop. It's like dancing back and forth. How long will you hop between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. But the people didn't answer Him a word, and Jesus said, I wish that you were either hot or cold. Pick a side, man. But the last day's church doesn't pick sides. Doesn't stand up for Jesus. And isn't opposed to the world. So we just kind of mix and match. By the way, lukewarm Christianity, let me just tell you right now, is miserable. Lukewarm Christianity is the absolute worst way to live because there's too much of the world to be content with Jesus and there's too much Jesus to be content with the world. Pick one. That's what Jesus is saying here to you and to me personally. Choose your side. And he would add, and and choose me. Choose my side. But don't think you can ride right down the middle and get by. You will be lukewarm. And light the fire. Heat the water. Let's get some passion going here. Or bring the cool water of the Spirit to refresh. Just don't try to mix the two together because you'll end up with the lukewarm lethargy of Laodicea. And here's the underlying problem. Look at verse 17. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing... You don't know how that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Because you got it all. Well, what nation has it all? What worldview? What season of the church has been more well to do than us in all history? Laodicea was so well off. I I found this to be true. Those who don't feel like they have any need are really hard to reach. I'm talking about non-believers who they're, they're well off financially and they have good friendships and life just seems to be fine and they're some of the toughest people to reach because they don't think they have any need for Jesus. What they see is people like you and me. Oh yeah, I see why you need Jesus. (laughs) 
which I reply, yeah. But they, they just don't think they have a need. Laodicea was that way. You know, in 60 AD, Laodicea was wiped out by an earthquake. And at that time, any city that was wiped out would appeal to Rome for help. They didn't. They just rebuilt on their own because they were so wealthy. Rebuilt the city to an even greater glory so that by the time John is writing Jesus' letter to Laodicea in 95, the city was flourishing. Rich, well-off, well-to-do, didn't need Rome's help, certainly didn't need God's help. They just rebuilt themselves and funded the project. And that's the church of Laodicea doesn't see their need. Personally, I kind of like when our budget gets tight. Why? Because then we need God. When we've got tons of money in... I'll tell you what, when we're in the barn and there was zero overhead except for the birds. We didn't have anything to spend money on. So we're just putting it away, putting it away, trusting the Lord wanted us to eventually build someday, and He did. We had all kinds of money in the bank and nothing to spend any money on. It was like, this is easy. And then God goes, I want you to trust me. And when it's not what we think it is, you know, when we don't have all, when we start to have need, we go to our knees. And that's a good thing. This is the church, this Laodicea church, that has really never known poverty or persecution or struggle. My American brothers and sisters, how many of us have known poverty and persecution and struggle? Now I know, I know some have struggled financially. I know that there has been need of help from time to time. And we as a family share what we have together. I get that. I'm talking about the kind of poverty that we see in Smyrna. I'm talking about where you lose everything if you claim to believe in Jesus. How many people have lost everything because you said, yes, I am a Christian? I've never known that kind of persecution. I've never known that kind of struggle. I have grown up in the easiest time for the church, at least in America, in history. And so what does the church in America do? How do we respond? We don't need anything. We're fine. We're good. So Jesus gives a clear correction, verse 18. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. How interesting is that? Why don't you buy gold from me? Banking system of Asia Minor? I know you got all kinds of wealth. You need to buy from me. And white garments, oh you retailers of black wool stuff. You and your black wool capes and your black wool Nikes and your black wool jeans. So black wool, cool. You need white garments. An eye salve. You guys are digging dust out of the hills to put in people's eyes? You need the eye salve that I give to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Remember the parabolic warning of Jesus, Matthew 13, 13? I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
And again, historical Laodicea, the go-to city for ear and eye issues, and prophetical Laodicea is in need of both vision and hearing. Because both are so dramatically lacking. Jesus says, Jesus says, I've got the goods. Come and buy it from me. I hear that and I go, is Jesus on Amazon? What what does he mean, buy it from me? It's really an interesting way to phrase this. Jesus doesn't say, ask me. He doesn't say, pray to me. He doesn't even say, come to me and I'll give these things to you. He says, buy from me. Well, how do we do that? Well, I'll tell you on Sunday. Verse 19. Those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. And the most remarkable thing about this letter is not the vapid, lukewarm lethargy of Laodicea. It's not his condemnation of it. It is the realization of the passionate love of Jesus for this church. Wow. Wow, I think I've already said this a few times. I am so struck by the love of Jesus for every aspect of the church for 2,000 years. When I read these letters, that's something that I missed the last time I taught this. Is that with every letter, Jesus is expressing deep, deep love. A deep passion. Whereas I read some of the letters and I just don't like this particular group. Sardis, dead church. Thyatira, powerful political church. Laodicea. And Jesus is writing these letters because He's just in love with every version of the church, even the church that is lukewarm. He's not lukewarm. And though the church may come off as apathetic, He's not apathetic. He is red hot. Which is why He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Well, Hebrews 12.5, quoting Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. And you know what? I grew up in that household of scourging. I got the belt. I know that's totally politically incorrect today. And some of you may see, yeah, you might say, yeah, Rick, you, <laughs> we see how messed up you were by your dad walking down the hallway with that leather belt. I can still hear the snapping sound. <laughs> My dad was a master. He'd wait till he was within earshot and he'd pull the belt out and you could hear it going out the loop. <laughs> well, I'm scrambling around my room to find a book to put in my pants. And then he would take the belt, fold it in half, and just outside my door go snap and I go. <laughs> and he would come in the room. Yep, and apply the Board of Education to the Seat of Knowledge. (laughs) And he'd pick up his tearful five-year-old son and he put me on his knee and he pulled me in and he loved me. And I am so thankful that he was willing to do that. I really am. 
I deserved it. <laughs> I won't tell you why. <laughs> but His discipline was love. That's what we see in every letter. His discipline is love. His discipline is love. And He turns around and says, so look, look what He says. The end of verse 19, be zealous and repent. Get fired up. That's the idea. That's the answer, by the way, to listless, lackadaisical, lazy Laodicea. Be zealous. You know what the word zealous is in the Greek? Zeluo. We get the word actually straight from the Greek. We say zealous, they said zeluo. And it means to burn with zeal or desire. Man, get fired up. Get a little burning going on. You know, in the negative sense, Zell, you always mean to burn with, means to burn with jealousy or envy or anger. Either way, we need to get fired up. If he needs to discipline us, we might be a little angry that the belt came down the hallway and snapped our little behinds. Okay, be upset about it for a minute. And then feel your father draw you into his lap and say, do you understand why I had to discipline you? Because my love for you is fired up. Your unrighteous behavior, it burns a little bit right here in my heart. And so you need to feel something. Feel anything. I knew this when my kids were real little. I didn't like this. I didn't take pleasure in this. But I knew this. If they didn't come to a point of tears in discipline, they didn't get it. Right, Naomi? (laughs) She's like, hey, Dad. Sharing is caring. (laughs) Hey, Jesus burned with zeal, didn't He? He got fired up. When He saw His Father's house turned into a flea market... Man, Psalm 69 verse 9 was applied. Zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And Jesus therefore has every right to discipline. Why? Because He loves you so much. The discipline of the Lord comes of the love of God. And now at the very end of this letter, Jesus makes a slight detour from His usual pattern. He adds in what I would call a current Calling, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I'm standing at the door. By the way, I stand here is the present active indicative. It's literally, I am standing. I am knocking. It's current and it's active. Which means it's, it's ongoing. If you've opened the door, wonderful. But if you haven't opened the door, as so many in lackadaisical Laodicea have not opened the door, He is knocking and knocking and knocking, and He's going to keep on knocking until the very last second when He comes as a thief. I stand at the door and knock, He says. And if anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come in to Him, and I will dine with Him, and He with Me. Have you seen the famous painting? I love the painting. It's called The Light of the World and it's a representation of Jesus. I remember the first time I saw this as a little kid. And it really impressed me. And I don't know why, but but the painting is he's standing there and he's holding a lantern. 
And he's knocking on a wooden door, and if you look at the door, it's got vines growing up from the bottom and growing around. It's over, it hasn't been opened in a long, long time. The painting was painted in 1851 by William Holman Hunt. It's now kept in a side room at Keeble College in Oxford. And what's interesting about the painting is there's no handle on the door. And the artist was asked about this, and his response was the handle's on the inside of the door. It only opens if you let him in. It only opens if you open it. And this is the stunning thing, and you Bible students know this, but perhaps everybody hasn't heard this or realized this, but he is not knocking on the door of the lost here. He is knocking on the door of the church. In our case tonight, he'd be right out there. Hey, you guys, what's going on in there? Yeah, we don't don't need you right now. Hey, hey, children, let me in. Behold, I am standing at the door and I am knocking. And Jesus is inviting himself to dinner. He just shows up. Hey, what are you guys doing in there? And the question is, will we answer the door or will we ignore the knocking? Ask yourself this personal question. Is Jesus Christ an interruption to your week? Or is He a welcome guest? Is there ever anything that you're engaged in or involved with where Jesus is just not wanted? Or do you always want Him there? Behold, I am standing at the door and I am knocking. Now, try to pull all of this together and see the next verse in the context of the whole letter as he gives a coming confirmation. Verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Why is that the promise for Laodicea? To the church of these days, to the church of our day, to the church in the metamodern world of the new sincerity. This is the church where our youngest are growing up in a strangely self-absorbed, virtual, detached society. And what does he offer? The newest tech? Open the door! I got a new gaming system. Does he say, open the door, I've got a new immersive media experience for you. He says, open the door. I want to eat dinner with you. And then he says, I love this. And I want you to come have a seat. Right here. Right up next to me. Come on up. Come sit with me on my Father's throne. Just come sit next to me. Okay, my memory as a child, aside from the spanking stuff, (laughs) one of my favorites, we had a huge overstuffed Lazy boy chair. My dad's chair. Sat downstairs. And one of my favorite memories of closeness with my father as a boy was when he would sit down with the paper at the end of the day. I'd come running into the room and he'd go, Come on, Rick. And I'd slide up beside him, my little feet, you know. And he'd have his paper. And sometimes he'd put his arm around me. He didn't even need to. I was with Dad. I was so close to my dad. Apathy? 
lethargy. These are the things that Laodicea is called to overcome. And to the apathetic and lethargic church, the greatest motivation for this lukewarmness is a seat right next to Jesus. He says, come have a seat next to me. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing... Oh, whoa. (laughs) We sit here tonight (laughs) like fish in a net. Among those who have been caught. And the question is, will we be among those who are caught up? Because to be caught up to be with Jesus is not some bizarre spiritual experience. It's to have a seat right next to Him. To get close to Him. This is the last letter of the things which are. And the reason I spilled over into chapter 4 is I want you to think about this. I know it's simplistic. But it's the last letter immediately before the things which will take place after these things. Which is chapter 4 and 5, the rapture of the church. That's exciting to me. You've got to think about the placement of everything in the Revelation, where it falls. We are now at the very end of the church age. In the letters and in the age. And the next thing that happens is after these things. And I can't wait to get there. We're going to have to wait at least a week. But what is described in chapters 4 and 5 comes after the last days of the church and we are in the last days. The question is, how will we be found? Thyatira? Sardis? Philadelphia? Or Laodicea? How will you be found? when Jesus calls us to come sit next to Him. Father, I just ask that You will ignite, Lord, a passion in our hearts. And even as I use that word, I know exactly what I'm saying. I know who I'm talking about. They're sitting in the back rows. I love that Jake chose that word for our junior hires. Ignite. I pray for them as I pray for all of us that You would ignite in us a passion for Jesus that burns hot and bright. I pray, thinking about our high school students, that You would manifest among them Your Spirit and Your power and Your passion. And then among all of us, Lord Jesus, as Your church, we would reject in all forms lukewarmness. We would not be willing to be anything less than absolutely and totally in love with You. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.